Section four of Autobiography of Phineas Pett by Phineas Pett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four. Phineas Pett continued. On the charge of insufficiency of material, however, the evidence is against Pett. There can be little doubt but that much of the timber was unsuitable. Some was green and unseasoned, some too old and in incipient decay while the curved timbers which should have been cut from trees crooked by natural growth had been cut from straight trees with the result that the grain did not run round but across the curves to the detriment of their strength in december sixteen twenty one the navy commissioners expressed their feelings on the subject to buckingham in a letter of which the following draft is preserved in the coke manuscript Quote, her weakness is so great that all we can do unto her at this time with above five hundred pounds charge will but make her ride afloat and be able to go to sea upon our own coast rather for show than for service and that to make her a strong and perfect ship will require at least six thousand pounds charge and time till monies and fit provisions may be had this we write to your honour with grief and some indignation seeing a ship which so lately cost his majesty near twenty thousand pounds and was boasted to be of force to fight for a kingdom so suddenly perish and that no other reasons are given thereof but her first building of old red and decaying timber and that fallen in the sap and her double planking with green and unseasoned stuff wherein the improvidence of the officers and unfaithfulness of the workmen cannot be excused such faults tending to the dishonouring and disarming of the state cannot with duty be either coloured or concealed perhaps this was stated a little too strongly for in sixteen twenty three after a refit costing under a thousand pounds she made the voyage to spain and back in safety nevertheless as pointed out by mr oppenheim she was never subjected to any serious work and in sixteen forty one she was entirely rebuilt at woolwich by peter pett at an estimated cost of sixteen thousand and nineteen pounds to which must be added two thousand one hundred and sixty pounds for launching and transporting her to chatham having been forced by the circumstances to take the matter into his own hand james seems to have conducted the inquiry with moderation and skill and if he had remained content with weighing the evidence and had not attempted to decide some of the technical points in dispute himself his decision might have received universal acceptance an inspection of the list of witnesses on either side shows that the weight of authority was against pett the seamen appearing against him were of much greater importance than those for him and with the exception of burrell who subsequently reported against the ship the same may be said of the shipwrights in considering the result of the inquiry we cannot do better than follow james's division into the three points of art sufficiency of materials and charge as regards art it is obvious that pett was treading the path of progress experimentally with his new design the criticisms indicate that he had introduced modifications into the methods followed by baker and the older shipwrights for example in the width of the floor and the shape of the bows while the subsequent fairing of the mould and the alterations to the futtocks 
show that he was uncertain where he was going and modified his plans during the building for the settlement of the much disputed point of the flat of the floor which seems to have been the determination of the actual point at which the lower sweep commenced obtained presumably by finding the geometrical centre of that sweep and dropping a perpendicular from it on to the floor james chose briggs who was an eminent mathematician and chaloner who notwithstanding that he was a court official was of some eminence as a scientist their verdict in favour of pett must therefore be accepted as final on the whole it seems that as regards art pett was in the right but as regards the second point material sufficient has been already said to show that his opponents were justified in their criticism as regards the third point charge i e costs facts show subsequently that the claim that the charge of the building of this ship should not exceed other ships that had been built in her majesty's times allowing proportion for proportion the garnishing not exceeding theirs was entirely unfounded for even allowing for the lavish decoration the cost of building was much greater proportionately than that of any of those ships the exuberance of the decoration may be seen from the entries in the declared accounts printed in the appendix which are of additional interest from the information they give as to constructive details it will be observed that these agree with such details as can be made out in the hampton court and hitchinbrook pictures the commission of inquiry of sixteen eighteen found the management of the navy in much the same state as it was in sixteen o eight with the same abuses still unremedied but although in its report it did not pillory pet as the earlier commission had done it seems by the reforms which it instituted to have made him very uncomfortable the actual shipbuilding was concentrated at deptford and phineas was employed at chatham in the work of improving and enlarging that yard william burrell who had been one of pet's chief supporters in the prince royal inquiry was made one of the commissioners and although he remained the chief shipbuilder of the east india company the whole of the new construction which amounted to two ships yearly for the next five years was placed in his hands all the ships being built under contracts made between burrell and the commissioners naturally this arrangement however efficient it might be from the national point of view did not coincide with pett's interests and in his usual hyperbolic style he describes burrell and norris the surveyor as his greatest enemies and attributes the necessary reforms of the commissioners to a plot to ruin himself the story of the expedition to algiers which was as much a diplomatic move in support of the elector palatine as an attempt to suppress the algerine pirates has been amply dealt with by historians but there remains something to be said about pett's connection with it and his financial troubles that arose from it it will be noted that he does not utter a word as to what happened between the time of his joining mansell's fleet at malaga in the mercury on the eighth of february and his return to the downs on the nineteenth of september this silence was no doubt intentional and arose from his unwillingness to put on record anything that might give offence to his friend mansell or to higher authorities part of the fleet was fitted out at the expense of the london merchants who entered into a contract with phineas for the construction of two pinnaces 
of one hundred and twenty and eighty tons respectively subsequently named the mercury and the spy it was the habit of the master shipwrights to exceed their instructions in building ships for the navy partly perhaps from a desire to do greater things than they were asked to do and to outrival their colleagues but largely because the greater the ship the greater the profit to themselves when pett attempted to play this trick upon the merchants increasing one pinnace from one hundred and twenty tons to three hundred and the other from eighty tons to two hundred upon some hopes of thanks and reward he got bitten badly for the merchants disdaining the precedence of the royal dockyards insisted upon holding to their contract and left pett to make the best of a bad bargain his appeal to the council for redress was referred to the committee of merchants who in their reply of the second of december sixteen twenty two pointed out that their chief desires and endeavours have been and ever shall be to do right unto all and as fast as money can be gotten in to give satisfaction where any just demands can be made unto us they added that at our last meeting captain pett sent his brother and son unto us with whom we have conferred and have agreed that captain pett shall bring in his account and if it appear that he hath not received as much or more than any way can be due unto him either for making the two pinnaces or his entertainment we will make present payment of the remainder as we have formerly offered before your lordships the matter drifted on until sixteen twenty four and two further remonstrances from the admiralty brought forth a reply from the merchants that were quote, sorry to observe your lordship's displeasure contained against us upon the suggestions of those whom nothing but their own demands can satisfy your lordships may please to be advertised that we contracted with him to build two pinnaces for twelve hundred and seventy pounds and have paid to his workmen and lent to himself divers great sums of money over and above our contract and his wages by reason whereof we conceive he is more indebted to us than his wages demanded amounts unto in a great sum of money and also we lent him two hundred pounds upon his own bond yet unsatisfied notwithstanding as formerly we have certified your lordships and sundry times offered to captain pett that we were ready to account with him that satisfaction might be given if aught were due to either party and we are still ready to perform the same yet because he rejects this motion and that we are desirous your lordships may be fully satisfied of our honest intentions and proceedings and may be no further troubled herein we are therefore emboldened to become suitors to your lordships that the commissioners of the navy or whom else your lordships shall please to appoint may have the examination of the account depending and if upon their report anything be found due we will take present order for payment thereof End quote. apparently pett never received the balance of the money but his troubles did not end there he was indebted to his brother peter for materials for these ships to the value of three hundred and twenty five pounds while his brother lived phineas does not seem to have troubled about repayment although according to elizabeth pett his sister-in-law peter had been often arrested on this account and phineas himself had as he tells us been arrested and imprisoned in sixteen twenty eight at the suit of one freeman by whom the timber seems to have been originally supplied 
After Peter's death, his widow endeavoured to recover the debt from Phineas, but could not enforce judgment on account of the latter's position as the king's servant. She therefore petitioned the Admiralty in January 1633 for leave to have the benefit of law against him. Pett was ordered to satisfy her or show cause why the law should not take its course. Pett explained his loss on the transaction and asserted that, notwithstanding this great loss and main other befallen me, yet according to my poor abilities I have endeavoured to make satisfaction for the debt due to my brother and he promised to pay it off in instalments. Elizabeth, who had herself been taken in execution for the debt, pressed for a larger amount down, because she was almost utterly undone through want of the said sum so long time, being the greater part of her maintenance. In May, Phineas wrote to Nicholas, protesting that he could not help defaulting in his payments because his son fell dangerously sick, and he could not get his arrears due from the exchequer, and asserting his intention to settle the matter before the end of this term. In June, Nicholas told him that the course of justice could not be stayed any longer, and Pett again promised that the instalment due should be paid. In October, Pett was still in default, and he was ordered by the Admiralty to give immediate satisfaction or show cause within a week why proceedings should not be taken. He managed still to hold out, and on Sunday the 8th of December, he was arrested as he was going to St. Dunstan's Church to hear a brother of his preach. The officers let him go when they heard that he was the king's servant, and subsequently excused their action on the ground that Mrs. Pett's daughter had assured them that Phineas lay skulking in obscure places, and then lay at a chandler's shop in Tower Street, being an old sea captain, and ready to go to sea presently. Upon this Pett petitioned the Admiralty, complaining that he had offered part of the debt, which was utterly rejected, and her implacable spirit will receive no other satisfaction but present payment of the whole debt, and he asked the lords to summon Mrs. Pett and her abettors before them for daring to arrest him without leave, so that he can go about his business without fear of arrest, and that she may be enforced to accept her debt at such reasonable times as he is able to pay. The remainder of the story is not to be found in the state papers, but Pett tells us that the matter was fought out at law, to his great charge, so that, presumably, he was ultimately compelled to pay the money. A little before the time when Elizabeth first began to press him for the payment of the debt due to her late husband, Phineas was being pursued by an anchor-smith named Tate, who asked the Admiralty for permission to proceed against him for a debt of £250, due on account of ironwork supplied for the construction of the destiny, which Pett built for Sir Walter Riley in 1617. Phineas does not mention this in the manuscript, but as it gave rise to an interesting letter to Nicholas and a petition to the Admiralty printed in the appendix, it seems worthy of passing reference. On the return of Raleigh from his disastrous expedition, the destiny was confiscated by the Crown, her name being changed to convertive pett was therefore unable to recover against the ship the seven hundred pounds which was due to him and presumably had no power to recover it from raleigh's estate possibly however this was another case in which he had exceeded the contract and had no legal remedy against the owner for the difference 
in relating the voyage to spain with the squadron sent to bring home prince charles after his foolish adventure with buckingham at the spanish court pet has not been so reticent as he was in the case of the voyage to algiers and he has given a fuller account of the incidents of the return voyage than will be found elsewhere the circumstances in which he went mark the peculiarly favoured position which he held in relation to the king and the lord high admiral the letter written to buckingham printed in the appendix further illustrates this special relationship his complaint therein that the cook-room of the prince had been moved against his consent is evidently directed against the commissioners who in their report of sixteen eighteen had urged that cook-rooms should be placed in the foresail because when placed amidships the smoke made the oakum spew out and they took up valuable space required for storage and by bad distribution of weights made the ship apt to sway in the back it does not seem unreasonable that the navy commissioners should have objected to the absence of one of the principal master shipwrights from his duties for such a purpose as the voyage in question although phineas with his usual animus against those who differed from him accuses them of plots and malicious practices the scandal in regard to the sale of old cordage as brown paper stuff was judicially investigated before the judge of the admiralty and the report of the proceedings is preserved among the state papers from this report it appears that palmer pett and others had sold this material much of which so it was alleged might have been used for oakum gunwads or twice laid rope without the consent of the other principal officers some of the money received for it had been applied to legitimate purposes but it is clear that part had been kept back in the hope that no questions would be asked and that after a time the holders might appropriate it for themselves the assertion of pett that it was claimed as a perquisite to our places is not borne out by his own evidence according to his deposition made on the seventh of august sixteen thirty three the keeper of the storehouse at chatham had reported to him that the storehouse was so cumbered with unnecessary and unserviceable cordage and old ends and decayed junks that there was no room for serviceable material for this reason he and turn clerk of the survey then acting as deputy to aylesbury sold a quantity of old ends and decayed junk for brown paper stuff but pett alleged that he told the master then attendant and other officers that nothing that was fit for use or service was to be handed over to the purchasers pett could not remember the total amount received for this stuff but stated that he had received of the said sir henry palmer upon promise made by this deponent to deliver up bills to the treasury of his majesty's navy for so much money due to him this deponent from his majesty four score and six pounds sterling and hath since made an assignment to the said treasurer to default so much out of this deponent's entertainment payable to him he further stated that the sales were by their own authority being principal officers of his majesty's navy and claimed that any two of the said principal officers personally attending at chatham have sufficient power and authority for themselves without acquainting the rest there being diverse precedents of the like done by others heretofore on the twenty second of february sixteen thirty four pett palmer fleming turn and lawrence were sequestered 
from their places for having sold the material without sufficient authority but on the first of march charles entirely pardoned pett while only allowing the others the favour of continuing in their places until they had answered in writing the idea of building a royal ship that should be larger and more ornate than any of her predecessors seems to have originated in the mind of the king who acquainted pett with his intention towards the end of june sixteen thirty four phineas thereupon prepared a model which was ready by the middle of october and was carried to court on the nineteenth of that month in the meantime the masters of trinity house heard of the project and lodged the amusing protest printed in the appendix apparently this model was not approved for on the seventh of march of the following year pett received instructions from the admiralty to build a new great ship of fifteen hundred tons and was told to prepare a model for it this second model does not appear to have been constructed but as pennington's draft giving the dimensions proposed by him for the ship is endorsed by the king as a model perhaps a tabular statement of that nature was all that was intended in april a committee consisting of pennington mansell pett and john wells examined pett's plans and drew up the following schedule of proposed dimensions which was approved by the king but afterwards modified Quote, according to your majesty's command we have examined the particulars of the plot and the dimensions presented to your majesty by captain pett and by comparing the rules of art and experience together we have agreed to the proportion underwritten which we most humbly submit to your majesty's further pleasure length of the keel a hundred and twenty seven feet breadth within the plank forty six feet two inches depth in the hold from the breadth to the upper edge of the keel eighteen feet nine inches keel and dead rising two feet six inches draught of water from the breadth to the lower edge of the keel twenty one feet three inches the swimming line from the bottom of the keel eighteen feet nine inches the flat of the floor thirteen feet rake of the stern thirty eight feet rake of the post eight feet height of the tuck at the fashion piece sixteen feet breadth of the transom twenty eight feet height of the way forward fourteen feet distance of the ports ten feet ports upon the lower tier square two feet eight inches ports upon the second tier square two feet six inches ports upon the third tier round or square two feet four inches distance of the ports from the swimming line with four months victuals at four feet six inches with six months victuals at seven feet distance of the ports from the swimming line with four months victuals at five feet with six months victuals at four feet six inches the first deck from plank to plank seven feet the second deck seven feet three inches the third deck seven feet three inches all the decks flush fore and aft and the half deck quarter deck and foresail according to the plot one this ship by the depth in hold will be one thousand four hundred sixty six ton and tonnage two by the draught in water one thousand six hundred sixty one ton and tonnage three by the mean breadth which is the truest of all one thousand eight hundred and thirty six ton and tonnage 
your majesty will be pleased to be informed that after mature debate we have likewise agreed upon the rules to be proportioned to each sweep of the midship bend and where the bend is to be placed and likewise of the rules to be held in her narrowing and rising lines which we all pray may be only imparted to your majesty robert mansell j pennington j wells phineas pett End quote. this is endorsed in the king's handwriting quote, dimensions resolved on for the great ship seventh of april sixteen thirty five it is of interest to note as evidencing the jealous way in which the fundamentals of the design were kept secret that the committee proposed to impart the details of the midship bend and of the narrowing and rising lines which together formed the key to the actual form of the hull to the king alone ten days later pennington appears to have put in a proposal that slightly modified this design increasing the draught of water by nine inches the beam by four inches the flat of the floor by one foot and the tonnage by fifty-six or forty-eight tons but decreasing the keel length by one foot his scheme of dimensions which is endorsed in the king's handwriting as quote, dimensions of pennington's model for the great ship seventeenth of april sixteen thirty five seems from the fact that the tonnage is quoted in the contemporary lists as one thousand five hundred twenty two tons to have been the one finally adopted though with slight modification it runs as follows length of the keel one hundred and twenty six feet breadth at the beam forty six feet six inches breadth at the transom twenty eight feet breadth at the floor fourteen feet breadth from the water two feet draught of water nineteen feet six inches ports from the water five feet ports asunder nine feet some more two feet ports from the deck seven feet six inches distance between the decks from plank to plank thirty seven feet six inches rake of the stem nine feet rake of the post seventeen feet height of the tuck seventeen feet depth in hold from the ceiling to the lower edge of the beam seventeen feet sweep of the rung head eleven feet sweep at the right of the mould thirty one feet sweep between the water line and the breadth ten feet sweep above the breadth fourteen feet burden in tons and tonnage by the old rule one thousand five hundred and twenty two new rule one thousand eight hundred and eighty four the outstanding interest of this model lies in the fact that it is the only instance in which the sweeps of the mould are given before we can proceed to construct from it the midship section we are met with a difficulty that the depth from greatest breadth to keel is not given but in the first model this was equal to the draught that is eighteen feet nine inches and since this was increased by nine inches we may fairly assume that the depth in pennington's model would be about nineteen feet six inches and in fact we have this dimension given in a contemporary list as nineteen feet four inches if taking this figure we now attempt to plot this section it will be found that the sweeps will not reconcile the radius of the futtock sweep thirty-one feet being too great by about six feet the mistake appears to lie in the height of the breadth from the water that is the height of the greatest breadth above the swimming line given as two feet in the first model 
this was two feet six inches and as it is not probable that it would be less in the deeper ship we may take this to have been three feet and not two feet on this assumption we can proceed to construct the curve of the midship section as in the drawing annexed in this drawing we have a b equals the half breadth twenty three feet three inches a c equals the depth from greatest breadth to top of keel nineteen feet four inches a d equals the half flat of the floor seven feet d e equals the radius of the rung head sweep eleven feet f g equals the radius of the sweep between greatest breadth and the water line ten feet f h equals the radius of the sweep above the breadth fourteen feet we can now plot the curve of the section drawing the arc f i with radius g f to a depth of three feet perpendicularly below c f we obtain the point i and producing i g backwards to k a point thirty one feet distance from i we have the centre of the futtock sweep or sweep at the right of the mould which is given as thirty one feet in radius with this radius from k we draw the arc i l cutting a line drawn from k through e at l on drawing the rung head sweep from d with radius of eleven feet from centre e it is found that this arc meets the other precisely at l and these two arcs reconcile i e are tangent to each other at l for the centres of both arcs lie in the same straight line k e l the curve of the top sides presents more difficulty because we are only given the radius of the sweep above the breadth but if we assume that the distance c m or total height of the midship section above the greatest breadth is equal to a c and this seems to have been the customary proportion and that the reverse curve n o was struck with the same radius as f n namely fourteen feet we get a curve for the half midship section a d l i f n o which cannot be far from the original design and in the lower portion must approximate to it very closely indeed there are no data from which the plan or elevation can be constructed but it may be noted that the list in the state papers already quoted gives the length of keel as one hundred and twenty seven feet although the tonnage remains as fixed by pennington so that presumably the rakes of the stem and stern posts were also modified so as not to increase the displacement or rather the empirical measurement of it some time during this year peter pett was petitioning the king for license to print and publish the plot or draft of the great ship a concession which he had apparently been promised but there is no record of the answer returned to his petition nor is there any trace of the drawing which may have been the original of the well-known engraving by payne in sixteen thirty three christopher pett gave pepys a copy of the plate of the sovereign with the table to it but whether this was peter pett's plot or payne's engraving with additional details cannot now be ascertained pett estimated the cost of building the ship at thirteen thousand eight hundred and sixty pounds and was to be required to put in assurance to finish her for sixteen thousand pounds but before she was complete wages alone had amounted to more than this sum while the total cost exclusive of ordnance reached the extraordinary amount of forty thousand eight hundred and thirty three pounds 
in may pet set out for the north to fell and prepare the two thousand five hundred trees required for her in chopwell and Brantspeth woods the cost of carriage of the timber to the water estimated at one thousand one hundred and ninety pounds at least fell upon the counties of durham and northumberland and bishop morton of durham who had been made responsible for the provision of this service had to apply to the council for assistance in proportioning out the assessment the county of northumberland objected to the burden to be placed upon it and it was suggested that cumberland westmoreland and the north riding of yorkshire should bear part by the beginning of september the timber had begun to arrive at woolwich and pet expected to have the ship finished in eighteen months on the nineteenth of september phineas found it necessary to protest to the king against the interference of the other officers who had from the beginning opposed the king's purpose in building this ship and especially against being made to take material of which he did not approve and against the attempt to charge the ship with the cost of houses then being built at woolwich he pointed out that he could not keep the cost within the estimate if such practices which seemed to have been customary were permitted the navy officers complained to the admiralty of pett's action and he was called before the admiralty when he denied that he had complained to the king about any of them possibly the great disproportion between the estimated and the ultimate cost of the ship was to some extent due to the fact that his protest was not successful though it is difficult to believe that his original estimate can have been even approximately accurate he had also underestimated by six months the time required to build her the manuscript ends abruptly with pett's visit to the lord high admiral on the first of october sixteen thirty eight and curiously enough the references to him in the state papers hitherto frequent cease at the same date with a letter from northumberland to pennington mentioning this visit except for one reference in connection with a gratuity to be given to henry goddard in april sixteen forty five his name is never again mentioned therein yet he remained in the service and carried on his duties at chatham until his death on the twenty eighth of june sixteen forty two the king sent him a warrant informing him of the appointment of pennington as lord high admiral in place of northumberland and directing him to send the standard and all necessaries for the fleet as sir john should direct it will be remembered that pennington hesitated and waited before going to the fleet with the result that warwick who had been nominated by parliament to take command went on board the flagship on the second of july and the fleet went over to the parliamentary side on the twentieth of august colonels sir john seaton and edwin sandys acting on instructions from the committee of public safety went to chatham dockyard which was surrendered to them by captain pett when he saw their warrant this was on saturday evening and on the monday they completed their work by placing a guard on board the sovereign pett was rewarded for his ready obedience by being included among the commissioners of the navy appointed by ordnance on the fifteenth of september and he was to receive the same allowance as he already held although the other captain except batten and john holland were only given a hundred pounds a year from this time until his death in august sixteen forty seven in his seventy-seventh year he seems to have remained quietly at chatham 
perhaps too old to take any very active part in current affairs for he has certainly left no mark upon them his death seems to have occurred unnoticed the exact date is unknown and there is no record of his will if he made one the last entry concerning him in the official records relates to the payment of his salary up to the twenty ninth september sixteen forty seven when he had passed away but no reference is made to that fact it is curious that sir henry vane the treasurer of the navy in sixteen forty seven who had corresponded with pett and must have known of his death has left a blank in place of his name in the entry in these accounts relating to the salary of thomas smith who succeeded to pett's post in chatham on the twenty eighth of august no authentic portrait of phineas is known to exist he tells us that in sixteen twelve his picture was begun to be drawn by a dutchman working then with mr rock one of the ship painters but does not say if it was ever finished the picture in the national portrait gallery which shows the stern view of the sovereign at one time supposed to be a portrait of phineas is now acknowledged to be that of his son peter another picture in the possession of the earl of yarborough has been exhibited in the past as a portrait of phineas but there can be no doubt that it really represents sir phineas son of peter of deptford and grandson of peter of wapping who was a commissioner of the navy from sixteen eighty five to sixteen eighty nine the ship included in this picture is probably the britannia built by sir phineas in sixteen eighty two in forming any just appreciation of the character and abilities of phineas pett regard must be had to the circumstances of age in which he lived it was a time of great political and religious unrest and expressions of religious devotion which might now be thought extravagant were then normal and were apparently not thought incongruous with dishonesty in money matters the chronic maladministration of the navy and the arrears in payment of the relatively small salaries allotted to responsible posts may to some extent justify methods of acquiring additional emoluments that nowadays are judged more severely pett's kindness towards his unfortunate brothers and sisters shows a good heart and there must have been something attractive in his character to secure him the steady support of nottingham james i and charles i which went so far as to shield him against the consequences of his misdeeds the favoured position which he held and the privilege he enjoyed of direct intercourse with the supreme heads of the navy behind the backs of his immediate superiors brought pett into conflict with the latter on many occasions it is not necessary to accept the explanation of phineas that these incidents were the result of conspiracies directed against him to oppose him was a deadly sin thus burrell who was a worthy gentleman and good friend when he stood on pett's side in the prince royal inquiry became pett's greatest enemy engaged in the malicious practice of tending to overthrow me and root my name out of the earth because he was appointed one of the commissioners of inquiry in sixteen eighteen pett was evidently interested in the various efforts made in the early seventeenth century to explore and colonize the coasts of north america he frequently refers to his friendship with button and states that he assisted in the selection of the resolution for the voyage of sixteen twelve he was moreover a kinsman of hawkridge and an acquaintance of fox while gibbons was the master of his ship the resistance 
the disparaging remark on weymouth's mistaking his course as he did in the northwest passage shows that he was acquainted with the story of the voyage of sixteen o two but the most competent modern authorities do not agree with this opinion of pett and of his contemporary fox and hold that weymouth did in fact enter the straits subsequently called after hudson and sail along them for a considerable distance pett was also a member of the virginia company though he does not mention this fact his name appears in the second and third charters of the company sixteen o nine and sixteen twelve and in sixteen eleven he subscribed the sum of thirty seven pounds and ten shillings this was the lowest subscription allowable for members but it was a comparatively large sum for those days evidently phineas in spite of his large and growing family was at this time fairly prosperous and had an income considerably greater than the fifty four pounds fifteen shillings which represented his official salary and allowance no doubt this income was augmented by the trading ventures in the resistance and by shipbuilding for private owners and by various official perquisites in sixteen fourteen it was increased by forty pounds granted him by the king under writ of privy seal but in sixteen seventeen and the following years his bad speculations in regard to the destiny the pinnace built for lord souch the mercury and the spy made serious inroads into his capital and burdened him with a load of debt which seems to have weighed upon him for many years and given him much trouble james came to his assistance in sixteen twenty by presenting him with a patent for a baronetcy which brought him about six hundred and fifty pounds and charles gave him another in sixteen twenty eight which only fetched two hundred pounds his appointment as a commissioner of the navy in sixteen thirty one increased his official income to two hundred pounds exclusive of the forty pounds payable on the writ of privy seal with this substantial addition to his salary he was in a position to gradually improve his finances and after sixteen thirty four we hear no more of the actions for debt from the story of his life as now unfolded it is clear that phineas pett was a man of considerable ability and industry kindly to his friends but impetuous and quick-tempered well in with the authorities and apt to take advantage of that fact when he disagreed with his equals or superiors it is probable that he was slightly in advance of his contemporaries in the profession of shipbuilding but not to the extent commonly supposed here his autobiography has stood him in good stead for it has attached to his name a personality that makes his existence seem more real and of more moment to a later age in which his professional contemporaries have become shadowy names it is difficult to say what was his real motive in writing it but it was probably commenced as an explanation of his position in regard to the prince royal dispute of sixteen o eight and afterwards continued partly for recreation partly perhaps for the edification of his children pepys appears to have thought much of it for he took the trouble to copy it into his collection of miscellanea but it is certainly wanting in the candour and honesty of the celebrated diary and seems to have been written in order to convey a favourable impression to the reader and explain away doubtful deeds rather than as a real revelation of self End of section four.